Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Tonight, I wanted to talk about a topic that, another topic that I've struggled with most of my life, uh, and, and since I maybe was in fourth, fifth grade, um, I always struggled with certain things in the Torah that I found to be unethical. I grew up in an Orthodox home. My father is Avi Weiss, who, who was here, I think, last year. Um, and I've studied in yeshivot, and it always troubled me certain concepts, um, certain laws, certain, certain descriptions of, of divine action in the Torah. And one of them that, that, that really dis- uh, always disturbed me was this phrase in the Ten Commandments of all places, that God punishes children for the sins of the parents. Pokade avon Avot Albanim. Um, so if you, if you look at source one in, in the handout, this is a description of the second of the Ten Commandments, where God declares, uh, God says, I am Lord your God. Do not bow down to idols. Why? Because I am a Kelkana an impassioned God. I think maybe a better translation would be I'm a jealous God. And because I'm a jealous God, if you worship other idols, then I will punish you. But I will visit guilt not just upon the the idolaters, the sinners, but also God says, I will punish the sins of the parents to the children, to the third generation, the fourth generation of those of those who reject me, of those who hate me, really, Lissonai. Um, I just became a father for the first time five weeks ago. And I hope that my sins do not go on to my baby Moses. Uh, that would be really, really painful for me. Anyway, so this is obviously a, a, a difficult, difficult verse. And it, it's a difficult verse that appears in, in the Ten Commandments. And the question, of course, is, is how do... How did Jews and, and, and Christians, I mean, it, this is not just a Jewish problem. This is also a problem for Christian interpreters who are also reading the, uh, the Bible. How do, you, how do you morally defend such a, such a position? What makes things complicated um, is if you look at the, the, um, uh, the book of uh, Yechezkel, which is in source number four, Yechezkel was the great prophet uh, living the time of the destruction of the first temple, 
Um, he actually was exiled with the Israelites in 597 BCE, and he prophesied from Babylonia. And Ezekiel in chapter 18 seems to reject a verse in the Ten Commandments. If you look at the text, Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by quoting this proverb upon the soil of Israel? Parents eat sour grapes and their children's teeth are blunted. Because there was this parable going around that the parent uh, eats a lot of candy and the, the, the teeth of the kids get all, all, the, all the cavities go to the, go to the children. Ezekiel rejects this, this, folk, this folk parable. Of course, what is he really rejecting? He's not rejecting just a folk parable. He's rejecting something more fundamental. He seems to be rejecting this notion that parents are punished for the sins of the parent. He seems to be rejecting the ten, a phrase from the Ten Commandments. He's not admitting as such. Right? He's claiming that he's, he's rejecting, via a divine revelation, this folk parable. He doesn't make any reference to Exodus chapter 20. And then Ezekiel continues, As I live, declares the Lord God. Of course, he's a prophet. He's not claiming this is his own view. He's claiming this is the, the view of God. This proverb shall no longer be current among you in Israel. Consider all lives are mine. The life of the parent and the life of the child are both mine. The person who sins, only he shall die. Very, very, very crucial Paragraph, Ezekiel chapter 18, the notion that people are punished for their own sins and not for the sins of others. And you can imagine that this was a very important at the time, right? I mean, the Israelites were, eg were, were just exiled from the land of Israel, right? The, 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 the destruction of the, of the temple was, was imminent. And according to many scholars... John Levinson and, and my advisor, Michael Fishbane, I know, I think he's, he was here a couple of weeks ago, who, who've written on this, have said, well, this makes sense in its context. Ezekiel was trying to communicate to the Israelites that, you know, they're not doomed um, forever because of the sins of, of their parents. Um, so this seems to be really a, a, a rejection of the, of the Ten Commandments without acknowledging it directly. So we have a second problem. Our first problem was a, a moral problem with Exodus chapter 20. Now we have a different problem. It's a, liter it's, a, it's a literary problem, which is there seems to be a contradiction between Exodus 20 and Ezekiel chapter 18. So the second problem that interpreters, both early Judaism and early Christianity, had to deal with. I should note there is another verse in Deuteronomy chapter 24, which is source number two, which states uh, that parents shall not be put to death for the sins of their children or vice versa. But it's important to note, virtually all scholars of the Bible have noted that this verse from Deuteronomy relates to the human courts, to human justice, and therefore really should not play a central role in our discussion today, okay? So that's the, the position of, let's say, like Moshe Greenberg and Yecheskel Kaufman. I'm just throwing out some very well-known scholars, Jewish scholars of the, of the Bible. 
So again, we have the moral problem and we have a problem of contradiction. And this becomes very interesting to see how the rabbis and, and, and early Christians read these texts. I should also note that this is one of the texts that became very famous in the second, third, and fourth century among a group of Christians uh, that I mentioned earlier uh, today at Temple Chai, the, the Marcionites and various Gnostics who believed that, that uh, who were Christian and they were followers of, of Jesus Christ, but they believed that the God of the Old Testament was a malicious, angry, horrible, evil deity. Um, so for example, Marcion wrote a book which is no longer extant. Um, Marcion wrote a book called Antithesis where he juxtaposed statements about God from the Old Testament, which is the God of wrath, juxtaposed it next to the, the New Testament God, uh, God of love. And it's called Antithesis, but we don't, it's not, it's not preserved, uh, all intact. How do we know about it? This is the irony of history, is that there were early Christian um, thinkers um, most prominently Origen and Tertullian, and a guy by the name of Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Lyons. Irenaeus of Lyons wrote a book called Against Heresies. And Irenaeus said that, he's writing in, in, in Greek, even though he's living in the West. Um, Tertullian wrote in Latin and uh, Origen in Greek. But I want to focus on, on Irenaeus because his is probably the most famous. It's called Against Heresies. He presents all of the heresies of the Marcionites and the Gnostics. And then he goes to refute, refute them. That's how we know about all this heresy. If he would have done nothing, right, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't know about this heresy. So you have to be very, very careful with whom you criticize and argue because you may inadvertently be preserving the very ideas in which, in which you want to undermine. So that's how we know about many, many of these texts. In, 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 in the 1940s, um, around the time that the, they discovered the, the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran, scholars also found a treasure a trove of um, Gnostic texts at a place called Nag Hammadi. It's the Nag Hammadi Library. Most of these texts were in Coptic. Anyway, what they found, both in, in, in the Nag Hammadi, Nag Hammadi Library and in the preserved writings of, of the Gnostics, preserved by, by Irenaeus, and, and uh, mostly by Irenaeus and by, by Tertullian also, is that this verse came up all the time. This was the, the most popular proof text that the Old Testament God is a bad God. So I'll just quote one, one such text that, again, that was found, this text was found at Nag Hammadi, I think in 1949. Shmuel, you want to look up when, the, when, when they discovered the Nag Hammadi library? I would guess it's like 49. Anyway. In, uh, they discovered in 45. 45, okay. Um, I think the person who discovered it, his name was Muhammad Ali, believe it or not. Really? Yeah. If I recall correctly. Anyway, uh, this is a text that was later, the title that was given to it by later scholars was The Testimony of Truth. And it says like this. Look, look where I uh, have it in the underlined. 
Surely God has shown himself to be a malicious envier. Here we're talking about the Old Testament God. And what kind of God, what kind of a God is this? For great is the blindness of those who read and they do not know it. In other words, these Jews and you know, these, the, the emerging Orthodox Christians who still believe, right? The, the emerging Orthodoxy within Christianity continue to believe in the Old Testament God and the morality of the Old Testament God. These people are blind. They read it and they don't even know that they're reading a text about an evil God. God said, I am a jealous God. I will bring the sins of the fathers upon the children until the third and the fourth generation. This is a key key proof text. So this issue was a real live question and, and early Christian thinkers responded. And one of the, the, the things that, that I've realized, um, and this is an article I wrote for uh, a recent article in the, in the Journal of Religion, which is the, the journal of the University of Chicago Divinity School. This is where I did my PhD. I always wanted to, to get published in this journal. And, and my first attempt, I was you know, I was turned down. It's very tough to publish. It's very, you know, it's not so easy. Um, but I kept at it, and, and with the help of my, my wife, um, helped me to re, re, redo the article. It took me six months to revise this article, and it was finally accepted. And what I, what I argued in this piece was that early Christian writers, when they interpret the Torah, they are much more open with the, the, the idea that morality should be an interpretive tool. In other words, that, that it is legitimate to say, okay, this text doesn't seem to be moral. We have a problem. And therefore, we have to veer, we have to veer from a straightforward reading of the text. The text can't mean what it sounds like. And therefore, they have to offer an alternative reading that would conform with the moral ideal. Because if the Old Testament God is moral and God wrote the Torah, right? The ultimate charitable reading. Um, but what I notice is that rabbinic texts, and when I say rabbinic, I'm referring to texts written by Jewish scholars from the first century to the eighth century of the common era, from the destruction of the temple until the Islamic conquest, till the rise of Islam in the seventh, in the seventh century. The rabbis typically do not grant morality um, significance, um, openly that is. Now, they, they, they may be moved by, 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 by moral concerns, by, by their moral intuitions, and I will argue that often they are. And this is something that Moshe Halbertal um, has, has argued in, in many of his writings, especially in this great book that he wrote in Hebrew. This is the first book I read in Hebrew, an academic book. It took me a long time, but it's a great book. It, 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 it's in English called Interpretive Revolutions in the, Make, in the Making. And he shows the rabbis did have moral concerns, and very often they would um, veer from a straightforward reading of a text when it didn't conform to their moral sense. But what I noticed is that the rabbis don't admit as such. They don't say, we have a moral problem here. They just solve the issue morally, but they don't tell us that they're doing that. Um, and that's the basic argument um, that I want to present today. And I want to show you that the early Christians and the rabbis often adopted similar interpretive moves to 
minimize, to neutralize the ethical problem, but typically the rabbis don't admit as such. And then maybe towards the end of, of the lecture, I'll, I'll try to um, theorize as to why that may be the case. Yes? So what's, if the, if the rabbis are uh, interpreting the text in terms of their own morality, what's their morality based on? The text. <laughs> it's circular. Yeah, this is the problem. I mean, the, the, the problem, of course, is that their values come from, the values partly come from their own, I would assume, at their own moral sensibilities. Um, and this is what Halbertal argues, that, 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 that rabbinic ethics, their ethical sense comes ultimately from their own ethical sensibilities because there are a lot of different values and ethics in the Torah. And therefore, ultimately, which values of the Torah should be privileged over others, which internal value should be privileged, is a decision that every individual has to make, right? So do you privilege the value of the Torah value of slavery? <laughs> do you privilege the Torah value of, of communal guilt? Do you privilege the value of um, liberty, freedom, you know? So there are a lot of different values running around. Now, scholars will say that's because there are a lot, there are a lot of different authors of the Bible. And then the Bible is not a book, it's a library of books written over a thousand years. And therefore, there is no author to the Bible. But if you are a rabbi living in the third, second, third, fourth century, and you believe that, that ultimately there's one voice, that there's one truth, um, you, you have to then, first of all, not only do you have to harmonize contradictions within the text, you also have to privilege certain values over other values. That's, that's a, Halbertal deals a lot with that question. That's a really good question. Yeah. You quoted the, the Ten Commandments chapter 20 of Exodus, don't you think that the verse 5, that was added on probably later, but showing kindness to yeah. the thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandment, neutralizes it. It neutralizes it, yeah. in yeah. verse yeah. 4. Therefore, we have to read the two verses yeah. together. And there may have been an evolution right there. Yeah, yeah, we that's an interesting... A, a, so what's your name? You're I'm Leo Abrami. Lior. A French Litvak. Okay. I've always been a Litvak. A rabbi in the community. So Rabbi Abrami says, listen, listen, Weiss, you're pulling a fast one on everybody, right? You're only pointing out the problem. But look at the next verse in, in verse 5 of source number 1, which says, okay, you know, God punishes children until the fourth generation, but, but look at the flip. The flip side is God shows kindness to the thousandth generation to those who love me. So, okay. So God may be tough on, on kids and grandkids, but he shows kindness to, to children and descendants for a thousand years, which therefore in most cases, was what the Rabbi uh, Rami is saying, is it neutralizes the problem because you got to assume in the last thousand years in my heritage that, uh, or thousands of years, right? That's la'alafim, uh, la not just to 1,000, thousands of generations that there must be some merit of the ancestors. And therefore, um, what, what you're proposing is that this was, uh, added was added on to neutralize the problem even within the biblical text. That's a brilliant idea. It's a brilliant reading. I like that. But and what's interesting is that, is that in the rabbinic period and in, in early Christian text, none of them notice that. None of them mention it. 
which is strange. The only mention is, and rabbinic literature does mention that God's mercy is, is, is 250 times his attribute of, of, of punishment, proving it from this, this text right here. Um, but, but it doesn't resolve, no one, none of the early thinkers really resolve the problem or show the internal, the internal inconsistency. How, how do you have verse four with also verse, verse five? Yes. I had a similar thought to Rabbi Abrahams, uh, which also ties into the idea that God's mercy is many times stronger than his vengeance. And that is that if it's not really just to punish the children for the sins of the parents, is it any more just to show kindness to the children uh, of, 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 the, of the righteous people if the children are sinners? Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the, the question of uh, whether God has vengeance or not is really, or, or what, whether God passes judgment into future generations, to me that comes out of the equation of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Because if God treats the, the, uh, the, the children of, of, of the righteous well, even if they're sinners, mm -hmm. and if God treats the children of the right. sinners um, poorly, even if they're righteous, then so that point. must not be what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And so, right. what he's talking about is that God's power of mercy is 250 times stronger than the power mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. vengeance. I see. That's, that's, so that's uh -huh. the way I come uh -huh. Interesting. It. Interesting. That's a, it's a good, that's a good read. So I'm I like so that. Naive. So I'm thinking as I'm yeah. reading that, it's a threat. Uh -huh. Whether he's going to carry it through or not, is, it's a threat. That's, yeah. that, because like you, I had trouble with reading certain things. Yeah. And so I had well, my own way of, of dealing with yeah. it. And so... That yeah, what's your name? Joan. Joan reads it as a, as, 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 a, as a threat. You know, it's interesting. There was a, there was a, um, a, a well-known Christian in, in the 6th century by the name of Cyril, Cyril of Alexandria. He was a bishop of, Alex, uh, of Alexandria. Look at that. His name was Cyril of Alexandria, and he, he lived in Alexandria. Um, but he, he, in his commentaries, uh, he actually makes that point. He thinks it's, it's obviously not... Not real, um, because it's just a threat. So you anticipated with the Gnostics. If the if the Hebrew God is a bad God, like they're saying, the Trinity includes the same God, doesn't it? Did the Christians suddenly get a different God? No, this was this was uh, the the early the early Mar the Marcionites and the Gnostics. They disagreed with 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 that claim that that the Father. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The yeah. Father is the Old Testament God. They think the Father is not the Old Testament God. It's another. It's a different God. Well, polytheism. Hmm. It's not monotheistic then. It's almost like saying Bell is competing with Jehovah. You see what I mean? Yeah. There, there is, there is. Um, the Marcionites, in particular, have have a certain um, level of dualism in their theology. But that's not monotheistic. Right. 
So Christian Marcion, Marcion is often, often viewed as, as a binatarian, as a, as a dualist. So Meaning that he believed in, in ultimately that, the, the, that there was a, a clash between two gods, a good god and an evil god. As opposed to a good god and a devil? Right, as opposed, well, that, as, as opposed to that, that, that ultimately there was, um, now I don't know, I'm not a Marcion scholar, but I guess you could ask whether ultimately the, the good god was, was stronger than the, than the evil god. Um, I don't know the answer to that. <coughs> but people have talked about how, how Marcion ha has a dual, dualist uh, strand, or strong dualism to it. These are all good suggestions. Um, let's take a look at the text. Uh, you know, let's go to the Jewish text first. I can read the original in the Jewish text. My Greek is really poor. Every uh, couple of years I try again. <laughs> And I lose. So we're now going to turn to, to, to source number six. There was a Jew by the name of Philo. How many people here know of Philo of Alexandria? So Philo, Philo was a Jew who lived before the rabbinic period. And um, he wrote a philosophical commentary on, on, uh, on the Torah. Philo had very little interest in the Bible outside of the first five books of Moses. Very few citations of biblical text outside of the Torah. And um, he was, a, he was, a, he was he, he, very interesting. He tried to harmonize the philosophy of Plato with the Torah. So he's often referred to um, as a middle, a middle Platonist. And he was really the first person to try to reconcile or to marry Greek philosophy and the biblical tradition, right? He tried to merge scripture and philosophy. So Maimonides was not the first guy to do that. Correct, but Maimonides didn't know about Philo. Oh, wow. Maimon there are a lot of similarities between Maimonides and Philo in terms of the way they think about God, in terms of the way they read Scripture, the Torah allegorically. Um, Aristotle, uh, Maimonides was more, of a, was more of an Aristotelian. Philo was more Platonic. Um, but it's really fascinating, Philo. Right? He write, he's writing in Greek. But the rabbis rejected him. There's not one mention of Philo in all of rabbinic literature. Louis Finkelstein had this claim, right? Louis Finkelstein, who was a great scholar at, at the Jewish Theological Seminary, he wrote an article once where he conjectured that maybe Philo's name is mentioned once in rabbinic literature because there's one rabbinic text that asks the following question. Will Plony receive a place in the world to come? So most people read that question as, will Plony just means so-and-so, anonymous. But if that's the case, the, 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 the question doesn't seem to make sense. What do you mean, will so-and-so receive a place in the world? Who's the so-and-so? So Fingelstein thinks that Plony is Philone. And the question is, will Philo receive a a place in the world to come. Anyway, so Philo has, has, has an allegorical interpretation, which I won't read through, but Philo, because he's just not influential. The first time Philo is ever quoted by a Jewish thinker after his own day is the 16th century, an Italian Jewish Renaissance thinker by the name of Azaria de Rossi. So how do we know about Philo? Who do we have to thank for Philo? 
Christians. The Christians, exactly. The Christians loved Philo, right, for his allegorical readings of, 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 of the Bible, which the rabbis, typically the rabbis don't like to read allegorically. They don't. They don't. They don't, they don't read, um, you know, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the patriarchs, as really symbolizing spiritual values or entities. That, that move is not really a rabbinic move. I mean, even the rabbinic interpretation of the Song of Songs, right? The Song of Songs seems to be erotic love poetry. The rabbis explain that it's really referring to the relationship between Israel and God. But it's just shifting one story, concrete historical story, to another concrete historical story. It's not elevating it to spiritual realm. Anyway, Philo, I won't read it inside, but Philo basically says that what are parents and children? This is a classic allegorical move. Parents are thoughts. Children are deeds. Right? So, so, so God does not punish people for, for sins of thought only until the, the thought becomes a child, the thought becomes actualized. That's the reading of... So in fact, Philo does away with the problem, right? Because God basically the point is God punishes us only for our actions and not for our thoughts. This is a, the allegorical reading that is presented by Philo. And interestingly enough, it is also picked up by another person who lived in Alexandria. Philo lives in Alexandria. Origen, Origen, who I mentioned earlier, who lives in the, in the third century, um, who was a proto-Orthodox um, Christian, um, who later in his life moved to the land of Israel and actually had conversations about the Torah with great rabbis, including Rav Yochanan, and, and Rabbi, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Hoshaya, um, there's a lot been written about that, that relationship because he moved, he lived in Caesarea. A lot of the, lot of the rabbis lived up north in, in Sepphoris and Tiberias, and etc. Um, Origen loved Philo and he actually preserved Philo's reading of, um, of this resolution of the problem. But what's interesting about um, origin, and here's source 10. If you go all the way to the last page, origin raises the problem. By the way, I should, I should decide origin was deemed um, as a heresy in the year 400 by the Christian. Right? Poor guy. He was like really important and influential. He was like the, the defender of orthodoxy. And then in the year 400, he became a heretic. Primarily by, by St. Jerome. So one day you're Orthodox and you're, and you're a heresy hunter, and the next day you become the hunted. Origen was one of those people. But uh, I like Origen. I'm, I'm a fan of his. He writes like this. Now let us also see what follows. How the sins of the father are said to be avenged in the sons in the third and fourth generation. For the heretics are accustomed to scoff at us on this word because they say it is not a word of the good God. Right? So he's basically alluding to the Gnostics and to the Marcionites, uh, or to Marcion himself, which says that one is punished for the sins of another, right? So, so Arjun is aware that there is this moral critique being leveled at the emerging Orthodox Christian community. He acknowledges it and says the following, it remains therefore that we pray that the Lord might show us 
how these precepts are in harmony with a just and good God. So he's recognizing that he's basically turning to God and he's saying, God, please help me. Help me figure out how to read these texts morally. And you'll find that Origen writes this kind of language in many of his books. This verse from August, uh, Exodus 24 was a very, very uh, important one for Origen. Here I'm citing his interpretations on the book of Exodus, but he also mentions this in three, four pages in a very important book that he wrote called On First Principles. So Origen, I'm, I didn't cite it here, but Origen picks up on Philo of Alexandria, uh, the same allegorical interpretation which the rabbis don't have. What are the rabbis? Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. What do the rabbis do? So let's turn to the Mechilta. The Mechilta in source number six, uh, the Mechilta is is the earliest rabbinic commentary on the book of Exodus. Um, if anyone's interested, there's an excellent translation of the Mechilta by, Brauda? not Brauda, this one was by Lauterbach, oh. Jacob Lauterbach. Yeah, uh, Brauda did a lot of the other uh, Midrashim uh, in the 30s. And the, the Mechilta says that the principle that the children are punished for the sins of the parents are only when the descendants continue in the evil ways of the parents. There can't be any skipping, meaning for two or three straight generations, the descendants have to continue in the evil ways of the parents. So that really takes away the moral problem, right? Because we're not dealing now with you know, righteous kids. We're, we're dealing with kids who are, who are sinners. There's still somewhat of a moral problem because still, I mean, even if they're sinners, why should they have to suffer more but at least we're dealing with, with, uh, with, with sinners. Um, so here, he, uh, the text says, during a time when there is no skipping or a time when there is skipping, an evil person who is the son of an evil person who himself is the son of an evil person. The end of the Midrash is really beautiful. Um, when Moses heard this thing, in other words, when Moses heard this interpretation um, offered presumably by God, <laughs> God orally at Sinai explained to Moses that there needs to be a continuity of sin, Moses had a great response. First of all, he bows low to the ground in homage and calls out, Holy One, blessed be he, chas There never is such a case. Three straight generations of sinning in the Jewish community? It can never be. There is not in Israel an evil person, the son of an evil person, the son of an evil person. Ain be Israel, Russia, ben Russia, ben Russia. So this is the approach. The approach which is find the technicality. This is one, the first approach we have in the, in the Jewish tradition to a morally problematic text. Find a way. Technicality. It's not a fundamental challenge. It's just finding a way to... The, the principle is still there. God still punishes children for the sins of the parents, but it's softened. But let me ask you this question. In this Michilta text, are, is morality driving the interpretation? I would say yes. Is there a recognition of it? No. The Mechilta doesn't ask the following question. How could it be? It seems to be unjust. We don't have morality used here as a hermeneutical 
It's a hermeneutical tool. Right? Hermeneutic is like a theory of interpretation. I once gave a class on different theories of hermeneutics, and I thought I gave the best lecture ever. And then after an hour of going through all the various uh, possible hermeneutics, I asked, is there any questions? And of course, the first question was, what is, what is hermeneutics? Well, Hermes was a Greek god. Yeah. And wasn't there Hermeticus try something or other test? There was actually... Uh, yeah, but that's a separate, etymologically separate. Different. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes. I still don't get, where is the morality in this? It's still accepting the principle. It's just saying it, didn't ha it won't happen. But no, the, the principle now is no longer will, will a righteous uh, uh, child or grandchild be punished for the sins of the parents. Only, 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 only evil kids. There needs to be three straight generations of evildoers. There needs to be a, condi a, a, a condition of continuity. And you have a very similar um, resolution in the Babylonian Talmud, which says that, that the principle of parental intergenerational punishment only applies when, um, when the children are ochez b'maaseh avihem, which means that the children grab on to the evil deeds of the parents. So it's so it, it, it reinterpreted by saying that's not what God said. Because it, it's not what God says in Deuteronomy here. Well, it's, it's, it's understanding the term uh, to those who hate me in verse 4 as referring not to the parent, Exactly. That this, of course, that undermines the threat, <laughs> like what you were saying. Okay, so now God doesn't punish children for sins of the parent. God doesn't punish righteous children for sins of the parents. So now we're, where's the threat? Now, I'll, I'll, I'm trying to think whether I should add one other piece here. Exodus 34, strangely enough, includes this phrase. God punishes children for the sins of the parents at the end of God's 13 attributes of mercy in Exodus 34. Do you want to recognize that? I don't want to deal with that. That complicates things even more, okay? How is that merciful? Okay. Um, my only point was that, is that, is that the moral issue is resolved, but the rabbis don't admit that the moral problem is what is fueling the reinterpretation. And now if we turn to the Mechilta, a different Mechilta, there are two different Mechiltas in the Jewish tradition. Mechilta is always an early commentary on the book of Exodus. Right? We don't have any early commentary on Genesis. That doesn't exist. Um, unless somebody here, I made this joke already, unless someone here has it in manuscript, you'll let me know we can make a lot of money. But source number seven, no, What's Mechelta? Mechelta means a, a, a measurement. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. The first one is the Mechelta of Rabbi Ishmael. It's a fascinating thing. There are many rabbis in the rabbinic period called Ishmael. Just goes to show you kind of the image of, of Ishmael wasn't all bad. Until the emergence of Islam. Once Islam started and, and laid claim to Ishmael, we don't have any rabbis anymore after the rise of Islam that I'm aware of that are Rabbi Ishmael. Oh. You know. Anyway, so, but in source number seven, uh, the Mechilta of, of Simeon Bar Yochai, this was a, a lost uh, Mechilta um, that was reconstructed by early scholars in, in the 19th century. In other words, this, this, this 
Exodus commentary, which is from a different school. We have a commentary from the school of Ishmael, Rabbi Ishmael, and then another commentary in the book of Exodus from the school of Akiva. And that is called the Mechilta of Shimeon Bar Yochai, who is one of the students of Akiva. We lost that Mechilta, but what scholars did is they combed through all of medieval Jewish literature looking for citations of this Mechilta, and they reconstructed it by plucking out all the citations, later citations, and then reconstructing what the old Mechilta must have looked like. This is before computers. And before CD and before and and before CD-ROMs, <laughs> but luckily enough, luckily enough, um, in, in the end of the 19th century, a man by the name of Solomon Schechter found the Cairo Geniza in the Ben Ezra Synagogue, and they found a manuscript of the lost Mechilta, and they did a pretty good job. David Svi Hoffman did a pretty good job before they found the Geniza. Looked pretty close. Anyway, the Mechilta was later published, uh, published by Epstein, and, and after he died, uh, a scholar Malatni named Malamed finished the, the, uh, the manuscript. They, the Mechilta of, of Ishmael Bar Yochai, totally, totally, radically reinterprets the phrase, God punishes the children for the sins of the parents. They don't read the word pokade as God punishes, but God remembers. Like the word pokade in, in Genesis, uh, was it Genesis 21? And God remembers Sarah, who was barren. Pokade is, it means parental merit. It means that God, what does it mean, God? Pokade avonavot albanin. It means not, not that children are punished for the sins of the parents, but only that divine mercy will not continue to be meted out if there are four straight generations of evil doers. If there are four straight generations of evil, evil doers, God will no longer have mercy on the fifth generation. Okay, so God remembers, God holds, remembers sin, God suspends sin for four generations, but if there's a fifth generation of evil, he no longer suspends sin. In other words, the th second generation, third generation of sinners, God doesn't mete out any punishment. It's a, it's a radical, it it's a, this is a reinterpretation by the Mechilta of Shimon Bar Yochai. If you want to read it inside, we can read it inside. But, that seems to be the only way to read in the attributes of mercy. Exactly. But then, but bracket, but. How do you read that back? How did the other way read it? How does the other way read why we're listing attributes of mercy and then it talks about divine? Justice? Either they'll say it's not mercy, that, that, that first Exodus 34 presents 13 attributes of mercy, and then there's an additional, additional attribute which communicates that there is a side to God that's not merciful. Maimonides, on the other hand, reads, re reads it that way. Maimonides says straight out that Exodus 34, parental sin, is not one of God's attributes of mercy. But others read it as an attribute of mercy, and, and they read it, and this is a reading that Yochanan Mufs uh, um, wrote about in his book called Love and Joy, uh, where Mufs argues that in the biblical period, um, suspending sin 
was, was a divine virtue. In other words, delaying sin and meeting out sin to your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren was a sign of divine love and divine mercy. God doesn't punish right away. And God delays uh, punishment, suspends punishment to your children and grandchildren, the assumption being either if there's a great repentance, perhaps this sin will never be um, meted out, um, or perhaps instead of the harshest punishment for the sins of the parent, if punishment can then be diluted, can be spread out along many, many generations, perhaps the punishment won't be as severe. But it's a problem that everybody's struggling with is, is, is how to explain the fact that Poket Avon appears in the context of a threatening context of Exodus 20, but in a merciful context in Exodus 34. Scholars of the Bible, academic scholars of the Bible, try to figure out what was the original setting. Was the original setting Exodus 20 and the author of Exodus 34 then applied it to Exodus 34 or um, the opposite? I knew, I knew that bringing up Exodus 34 will, would just complicate things. Um, but but um, I, I should add, there is one very late Midrashic text called the Mishnat Rabbi Eliezer, probably early medieval, that explains it in a very similar way to this Mechilta of, of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, that in the following way, when it says that God punishes children for the sins of the parents, it doesn't mean that. It means that God visits the sins of the parents on the children, which means that if the children are righteous, they can atone for their parents' sins. God brings the sins of the parents onto the children, and then the children can, 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 can hit, the ball, hit, hit the sin out of the park. This idea that banim mezaka avihem, that children, the good deeds of children can serve as an atonement for the sins of the parent. I wrote an article about this, um, Child Salvation, in, in, uh, in the YCT journal. It's still a bit so. rough to be stuck with having to do that obligation. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But, but my, my larger point here is that if you read this, this second Mechilta text, they, it's a radical reinterpretation. And it's clearly problematic reading of Exodus 20 because the context is this is a threat, right? We're not highlighting divine uh, mercy in, in, in verse 4. Um, but in general, I think this is another approach that often scholars take when they are confronted with an ethically problematic theology or law. It's not finding a technicality to do away with the problem, right? It, it is basically engaging in a radical reinterpretation that, is, that ignores the context. So I think about it often, you know, in, in, in the Orthodox Jewish community when, you know, because this is the community I grew, grew up in on, on the problem of, gen, of women and in, 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 in gender and in, in Jewish law. You know, all of these rabbinic texts that seem to limit the inclusion of women, which, are, which is obviously morally problematic. So one approach within orthodoxy is, okay, find technical, technical ways to include women, you know? Women's prayer group, find this way and that way, right? But then there's the a much more fundamental way, is, is to um, say no, to reread the, re the, the, the tradition, right? To impose a liberal hermeneutic, as my father often does. Read the text, even if it goes against the pshat, what seems to be a literal reading of the text, it's okay. You, you adopt a radical reinterpretation. The last approach, uh, I think, and by the way, this, this same approach of the Mechilta of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, which is to radically reinterpret 
visiting the the sins on the children as 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 as, as, a, as divine merit rather than you know divine guilt is something that Cyril of Alexandria in source 12 which is the bishop that I mentioned earlier he comes to the same conclusion here um, in source 12 but I didn't include it because it's a bit complicated but what I did include in Cyril again is that Cyril raises the moral problem here with Exodus 20 verse 5. Right? He writes, it's ignorant to suppose that the sins of the parents are actually visited upon children and that God's wrath extends so far that it reaches the third and the fourth generation, unjustly punishing the innocent for the sins of others. After all, would not any who are wise have to think, as is, as is fitting, that the source of righteousness and morality would not do such a shameful thing? So he's asking the moral problem. We don't have this language in early rabbinic texts. It is quite incredible, therefore, not far from complete idiocy to think that God attributes to himself love and gentleness towards humanity and at the same time such immense irrational anger. And then Cyril goes to adopt the interpretation that I just mentioned in the name of the Mechilta of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Now I want to turn to the last, uh, the last rabbinic approach, which I think is the most radical. And that is to say that maybe God got it wrong. That God got it wrong. How could you say such a thing? Isn't God perfect? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. In my book, the last chapter of my book, I, I mentioned earlier today that I list a whole long list of rabbinic texts where God concedes moral error. Um, it also appeared in, in the Harvard Theological Review, HDR. It's called Divine, Divine Concessions in the Tanchuma Midrashim. This is my favorite Midrash right here, uh, source number nine, which is, it's a, it's a rabbinic commentary on the book of Numbers. This was probably composed in the sixth century, early seventh century, according to the scholars. Az Yashir Yisrael, ze'achad megimel dvarim sh'amar moshlaf nekodesh baruchu v'amar leili madatani. This is one of three instances where Moses said something before God and God responded with the phrase, you have taught me something. It's astonishing. You don't find that this, any text like this in the Christian tradition. The second instance, what's the second instance? The other two instances I won't mention now. If you want, I'll talk about it another time, but it's our, our case. When God said to Moses, visiting the guilt of the parents upon the children, Moses jumped up in protest. I said I just became a parent five weeks ago. My son, his name is Moses. So it sounds differently this time. But <laughs> Moses said, hopefully my, my, my son Moses will have the same ethical courage and, and religious passion as, uh, as Moses. Moses said, master of the world, how many evil people give birth to righteous people? This is a crazy theology. Shall the righteous take from the sins of the parents? And then Moses was smart enough not just to ask the theoretical, not just to pose the theoretical issue, but to give concrete examples. Terach, Abraham's father, worshipped idols. And Abraham, his son, was righteous. So what, you're going to punish Abraham? You're, you love Abraham. And also King Chizkiyahu, who was a righteous king, his father Ahaz was a wicked man. Of course, these kings lived after Moshe, Moses' time. 
So how did Moses know this? He must have been a prophet. <laughs> um, or maybe the rabbis were putting all, putting all of this into his mouth. And also Josiah, right? Yoshiahu was righteous and his father Ammon was a wicked man. Is it appropriate, God, Moses asks, that righteous people shall receive lashes for the sins of their parents? A really quite an amazing response. God said to him, from the word lamad, lined. You've taught me something. I am bitl. I am, I nullify my word. And I accept your position. We got to cross that phrase out of the Ten Commandments. Always, always worries me when people talk about on, on, on the religious right, you know, the conservative, they're going to put up the Ten Commandments in front of uh, the courthouses of uh, justice? Are they going to include this phrase of punishing children for the sins of the parents? We've got to tell them that this text, you know. Shinemar. So then it says, not only will God accept Mo Mo Moses' word, but in the future God says this principle that uh, children shall not be put to death for parents. This principle from now on in, will actually be called by your name. As it says in the Torah of Moshe, a citation from the book of Kings, Kings 2. It's a really quite a remarkable, remarkable text. Um, and, and it, of course, poses problems for medieval Jews who believe that God was perfect. Certainly philosophical Jews, that God couldn't error. What does this text mean? Yes. This, this, this echoes of this, it seems to me, throughout the Torah. I mean, uh, Abraham arguing with God at Sodom, at, at, uh, at Sodom um, you know, um, that he shouldn't kill everybody. Um, God apologizing or not uh, feeling bad about uh, the flood. Um, it seems to me that this is um, characteristic, it's characteristic of a lot of stuff I've read in the Tanakh and, and interpretations that Judaism involves a lot of arguing with God. Yeah, there's a lot of arguing with God uh, in, in the Bible, but I think this is, um, I think it's a, a different here. I think there's, because there's a radical change and transformation of how God governs the world. Um, I think in, in your two cases, I'll take each one of them separately. With regard to Sodom and Gomorrah, it's not as if Abraham said, you know, God, it is wrong to conduct uh, communal guilt, right? You know, I always said that Abraham should have turned to God and said, not to, not God, why are you, you know, destroying the, 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 the righteous uh, for, for the sins of the evil. Abraham should have said, God, destroy the evil and, and keep the righteous alive. Why is it one or the other, you know? And ultimately, God, who knows? Maybe there were five righteous people, and God, does, God still destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe there weren't ten righteous people, but maybe there were five. Maybe there were seven. It's not as if there's a principle here, a moral principle um, that God concedes to. With regard to, to the generation of the flood, I mean, there, it's not as if God changes his moral view of the world. It's just that the creation which he created didn't go the way he wanted it to go. Vayinachem Hashem, you know, is, is, I think, is, I think is, it's not as extreme as, as you've taught me something, right? There's Moshe, challenge, Moshe challenges God, 
you know, Vayinachem Hashem ala ra'a asher, right? What is it? That God decides not to destroy the Israelite people. But you don't have that, 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 that same response to a sharp moral critique, right? So in Exodus 32, you know, M Moshe turns to God and says, you know, you're going you're to hurt your reputation if you destroy all the Israelites. Or you're not going to be fulfilling your promise uh, that you promised the forefathers. So on that, God says, okay, you know, I will forgive them. But it's not, it, it, it's not as if Moshe turns to God and says, God, okay, we did the golden calf. So take out those people who did the golden calf. What, what, what are you engaged in, 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 in corporate guilt and punishing the innocent for the guilty? If on that type of critique, God would have said, you're right, I'm wrong, then I think that would have been similar, right? So I think it's a different type of, but you're right, it's, it's certainly pointing in that direction. And I think there's certainly, um, they're, they're, it, it anticipates some of these texts. And these texts, go, I think, go even further. That's going to be my, my argument. I mean, just this approach to the anecdote. Um, in reading Jewish text and um, and and um, 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 rabbi discussions um, over the last number of years, I've been kind of struck by how this theme of um, argument, questioning, seeking truth through give and take an argument. Um, at, at one point, because of uh, interfaith. I, I read uh, some of the books in the Gospels, and I was just struck by the contrast. Um, you know, I haven't read a lot of Christian texts, but the little bit I read, I was struck by the contrast in, in the sense that there didn't seem to be any argument there. It seemed to be arguments with God. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, it seemed to be just Jesus said something, and everybody says, "Wow, that's amazing." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, an important. Um, Concept and this comes up in, in, in Paul's letter um, to, to the Romans, you know, where, where Paul says, Who are we to question any of God's decisions? Right? You know, we're like, uh, Paul compares it to, to clay in the hands of the potter. And Paul says, What? Can clay argue with the potter? Right? And, and they're. they're Paul's picking up on, a, on actually a verse from, 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 from a, uh, the, the clay potter parable that appears in Isaiah and Jeremiah. But that becomes a very, very important motif within Christianity, those lines from Romans. Um, interestingly enough, the rabbis flip that all on its head. The rabbis use the clay potter in exactly the opposite way in which Paul does. Paul says, look, clay can't ask any questions. First of all, clay is clay. Clay, clay can't ask any questions. And second of all, um, Potter has all the strength. Potter, Potter could do with clay whatever Potter wants. God could do whatever he wants. In the rabbinic tradition, they turn it on its head. There's a great midrash te uh, midrashic text when, when, um, when the Israelites were engaged in, 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 uh, in the golden calf. So Moses turns to God. This is a late rabbinic text. and says, God... How, 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 are you, how are you punishing the Israelites? They sinned, but who gave them an evil inclination? You implanted within them the evil inclination. And then they bring up, this text brings up 
a parable of, of clay and a potter. If a potter makes a cup out of clay and the cup is defective, who do you blame? You blame the clay or the potter? You blame the potter. First of all, the potter is Yotzer, etymologically close to Yetzer. Yetzer, Yotzer. So they're playing a little bit of a word game also. You see, who do you blame? Right? It's a very, 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 very strong text. Right? There's another similar text like that in, in, um, with regard to the, the golden calf where, where Moses turns to God and says, God, you're going to blame them for, for worshiping idols? Where do you think they learned how to worship idols? The Israelites learned, learned how to do that in Egypt. God, who put them in Egypt? You put them in Egypt. And then Moses, in the Midrashic text, then quotes a different parable, which is if a, if, if a father uh, gives his kid money and drops him off in, in front of, of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a, what's it called, a whorehouse, and the kid engages and sleeps with prostitutes, you blame the father. You don't leave your child off in this type of an environment giving him money. Who's to blame? Of course the father is to blame. So you have a very different, um, the, the Jewish tradition, and I, I spoke about this earlier, I wrote a book on this, the, the Jewish tradition embraces, there's a strong pro-protest uh, tradition within, within Jewish literature that, that you see throughout late rabbinic literature. It skips over the medieval period, we talked about that, why that might be earlier today. And then it returns in Hasidic texts with, with figures like Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev and, and, and the Kotzker, and of course, in recent years, you know, with Elie Wiesel and, and David Blumenthal. And, has he ever been here, David Blumenthal? He's, he's a professor at Emory. He wrote a very, very controversial book called, um, called Facing the, Abu the, Abusing, the Abusing God. Very controversial he was very upset with my book. There were certain things he didn't, oh, I'm on tape. Certain things he didn't like, but he's been, he's a wonderful man. There are certain things he didn't like about my book, which were fair critiques. Uh, uh, yes? Last year we studied Job um, in, in another temple with uh, a person who's, you know, studied ancient Hebrew in Harvard that came from the uh, ASU Jewish Studies Institute. And she said that prior to the Aristotelian concept of perfection, the Jewish God was not perfect. Is that a, a fair statement? That God was not all-powerful or all-perfect, and that got added in from the Greek thought of perfection? Yeah, uh, certainly, the, I mean, using those type of terms, you know, a God that is omniscient and omnipotent mm -hmm. and um, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-perfect, that, that kind of language is, 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 is much more philosophical, certainly, to speak in those types of terms. But um, you, you, know, you, do have, you do have some phrases in the, in the Torah, in the Bible, that speaks about um, that God's uh, justice is, is perfect, right? Sur tamim palo, in Deuteronomy 32, that all of God's ways are just, or, or in the Psalms you have, like, there's no avla with God, there's no sin with God. So you do have kind of these, these phrases that are not hashed out, or not, certainly that are not um, um, theorized or uh, conceptualized or placed in any sort of a, of a system. or of a, 
you have these kind of phrases here and there. But if you read the stories, I mean, certainly God in, in the stories is, is, does not appear as always all-knowing or even all-powerful. All I mean, you have these texts in the Bible about God uh, engaged in, in mythic um, battles, you know, the mythic-like battles with sea monsters. and Making Job, yeah. You know, right, exactly. Contain the monsters. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you have that in, in Isaiah and Psalms. And Fishbane has written a lot about this. Yes. What I'm hearing is, is that the concept of God is a moving target through time and the particular philosophies that the Jews and the rabbis were exposed to at that particular time in history. Am I, can I paraphrase? Yeah, there is, there is, a, there is a history to... to to, to God within the Jewish tradition, and and, and Rip Shmuley and I actually talked about this a little bit in our in our um, twenty minute uh, interview we did today, which you can see on Facebook. Uh, there certainly is. I mean, the rabbis really rejected the philosophical idea of God. I mean, the rabbis really saw God as a character and as a a person with human like emotions, um, even more even even more anthropomorphized, even more human like than what we have in the Bible, because. The, the God in rabbinic literature is a God who also suffers. Um, you don't have that as you don't really have that in in, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, God also engages in all, all sorts of human-like activities that we don't have in the in the Bible. Um, I write about this in the cha chapter beginning of chap chapter five uh, in the book. Um, but but the rabbis so rabbis reject the philosophical definition of God uh, as being unchanging and perfect and having no body. Um, but, the, but the, the Christians didn't. The early Christians accepted philosophy and engaged with philosophy. First of all, they're writing in the same language. And for whatever reason, there was uh, an openness to, to Greek thought. Um, I mean, the New Testament's written in Greek. Uh, the rabbis really rejected. I mean, the rabbis don't mention Plato or Aristotle. And the only time they mention Greek terms um, to describe <clears throat> thought is always in the negative. So they'll talk about the Epicureans and say the Epicureans are the worst, or the, you know, or, or terms like that. I mean, they, they'll never try in any way to integrate or synthesize Greek thought. And the person who really begins this process is Maimonides. I mean, that's why Maimonides really revolutionized Judaism, because he basically took, you know, an Arist Aristotle's God, mixed it with a little bit with, with a, 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 a mystical follower of Plato named Plotinus, Right through through Arabic translations and Arabic commentaries, so it's an Arabic Aristotle, and try to reread the Torah through an Aristotelian lens, and it makes sense why he was so controversial. And he writes this all in Arabic. I mean, his his philosophical work, the Guide to the Perplex, is in Arabic with with Hebrew letters, and there's a lot of pushback. I mean, Maimonides' books were burnt by, by Jews in northern France and Germany. Um, there was a ban on philosophy in, what, in the 1230s. Um, so he was really controversial in his day. So, I mean, Maimonides lived from 1138 to 1204. There was a big debate whether Maimonides was born in 1135 or 1138. This is what scholars kill each other over. <laughs> and he's like four, four articles and when, you know. It's the most heated exchange in the academic world when, it, when, when, when the stakes are, are, are the least. That's when they, they really go at it. It's proportionate, inverse proportion. Yeah. So when did he reemerge? Uh, 
Well, Maimonides' philosophical thought was, was really um, accepted by some Jews in Spain and also southern, uh, southern France. I mean, um, but even though Maimonides, is, Maimonides was born in Spain, in Cordova, but he, but he moves to Fez and then Egypt. But he, he was accepted by Jewish philosophers, but he, he was eclipsed by Kabbalah. I mean, Kabbalah beat Maimonides. I mean, 15th, 16th, 17th century religious Jews, all, all pretty much all accepted, you know, with a few exceptions, the Kabbalistic conception and understanding of God. The Aristotelian view of the, first of all, Aristotelian view of the world was overturned. Maimonides' is, is greatness stems from his great legal code. The Mishnah Torah, exactly. So even today, you go to yeshiva. I mean, I never studied the, the, his philosophical work. Only, only, only his legal works, which were written in Hebrew, were the only text that he wrote in Hebrew. Is this only concept major text. of God still a moving target, or it's been locked in at certain points? Um, well, I mean, my, first of all, Maimonides tried to, uh, to codify, codify, it. codify it as dogma. Um, there are a lot of different conceptions of God. There's the Hasidic conception, the Kabbalistic, the philosophical, the rabbinic, um, and I'm sure you have even more recent conceptions of God that I'm not so familiar with. You know, whether it be the Bubers and Rosenzweigs and Herman Cohens and Art Greens and and others. Um, I guess it's always going to be a moving. I guess it doesn't stop being a moving target. But I don't Judaism think. Absolutely, because I see Juda I see Judaism as 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 the human attempt uh, to to find God, to find meaning, to find spirituality, and I'm moved by the attempt. And who's right or who's wrong? I don't know. It depends on depends on the day. Depends on my mood. But you know. No. The problem with orthodoxy, and I grew up orthodox. The problem with orthodoxy is it tries to lock to lock everything in, and also to to conflate the differences. So, you know, they'll they'll say there are no sharp radical differences between the Hasidut and Maimonides and the rabbis. It's all kind of it's all kind of mushed together, and you somehow have to come up with a system that is able to incorporate all these different types of Judaisms. They don't see ruptures and transformations. Uh, typically, Orthodox Jews like to, to try to reconcile the various conceptions of God and to downplay the, the, the radical differences. There's an attempt at reconciliation, because it's a very difficult thing to really think about the fact that, you know what, over a fundamental question within Judaism, there are such radically different conceptions of God. I mean, that's a pretty fundamental debate. I mean, that's not like a debate on, you know, how long your, your tzitzis should be, you know. So I, that's, I've witnessed that in yeshiva uh, through my friends, is that they, they, they come up with an idea that it draws from Rambam, Maimonides, it draws from Kabbalah, it draws from here, as if there's one truth out there, and these are all kind of just different echoes of truth, rather than seeing it, rather than seeing Judaism as a human um, as, as an evolving human attempt to understand, you know, to, 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 to grab at, you know, the metaphysical world. Um, again, I'm not orthodox, I left the orthodox world, so that's, that's the kind of the, the, the religious Judaism that I'm more comfortable with. But it, it, I acknowledge the fact that it's, it's a Kaplan, it's a Kaplanian Judaism, it's, it's Mordechai Kaplan view of Judaism, um, which tries to reject the, the, the idea that there is an essential Judaism, that, that what binds Judaism is more the, the language, the form, than the content. 
Yeah, yeah that there is no, you know, if someone asks you, do you believe in God? I mean, it's like there's so many different conceptions out there. Um, so I don't know, I, I view Judaism more as a, as a culture and a civilization and as, rather than there being some truth out there. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it as more true than any other religion. Yeah. I'm grateful to you for calling our attention to the commentaries to this text of the Ten Commandments in the, te in the, in the rabbinic literature, in the patristic literature. What about the Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern uh, civil, civilization? Is there any indication that in the, the, uh, in the Middle Eastern culture, they did believe that the children of a sinner would be punished for the sins of his father. Was it not borrowed from the external world? Absolutely. And therefore, it came into the Torah, and then they corrected it. And Ezekiel <laughs> yeah. corrected it too. Yeah, yeah. He said, we first thought that this was the truth, but it was not. Right, right. Right. There is, I mean, the, in, if you look at the, the ancient uh, legal text of Hammurabi, I mean, uh, the idea that children are suffer for sins of the parents is all over the code of Hammurabi. Right. Not so just only. Right. From. Right. Wow. Probably. So it was the pagan background that influenced even yeah. Moses. The difference being is that in the Torah, you don't have intergenerational punishment in a human court. You only have it in a divine court. Whereas in Hammurabi, you have it as well in, in, a, in the human court. You know, so if someone commits a crime, you take it out on on the wow. on the criminal's kids. Well, yeah. More or less what, we did. what do you mean? Well, I was thinking just the other day, the the crimes of the German Nazi government are being paid for by the children. The people who are getting reparations, that money is being earned and produced by people who weren't even alive during the Holocaust. So we are, in a way, doing that. Mm -hmm. But they're also repenting for the sins of their parents by assuming responsibility for what their parents did when they weren't even born then. That's a possibility. So this way they've redeemed Germany and they've redeemed themselves. They've redeemed Germany. Can they ever redeem? You see, I'm not talking about... The whole thing is that the Nazi, the Shoah, and the war, because don't forget, the war caused the death of many millions of people who were not Jews in concentration camps. That whole, the Shoah and the war, was done by the government. At the time, the people had elected Hitler, and Hitler took over and did what he wanted to do. Now, the people who have elected the government of contemporary Germany. This is going in a direction I didn't think we were going to go, but okay. Their yeah. government, their current today government, atone for the sins of the Second World War government. But that's not a personal thing. And that's what you were talking about, civil law. 
and religious law. This is a civil law thing. Mm -hmm. Right. This is something that the current German government is doing to try to atone. I mean, it should be happening in Russia. It should be happening in China. It should be happening in all the countries where a dictator has caused his country, his people, to do something evil and wicked. Stalin killed more yeah. people than Hitler did. Right, right, right. Your, your comments uh, remind me of, of two last things I want to just, just, just mention. I appreciate your, 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 your comments, and it's a good question. I don't have any answer to it. It's a oh, good question. Yeah, but, but, but um, um, yeah. The, 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 what's interesting is that if you look at the medieval period, um, there are two new, new solutions to this problem. One is a, a, a Kabbalistic solution which is what, what very important idea comes up in Kabbalah that we don't have in, before Kabbalah and Judaism? Well, the concept of Gilgul. The, exactly. The, uh, Reincarnation. So the, 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 the descendants are really... Exactly. The descendants are them, just a new body. And the other, other reading to this was done by, uh, Shmuley and I were just talking about him earlier today, by Gersonides, who was, a, who was even more, more of an Aristotelian philosopher than Maimonides was. And he says, no, no, no. When it says that God punishes the children for the sins of the parents, it just means naturally if, if, if a child grows up in a home where there is abuse and crime, etc., that will naturally affect the kid. But it's not a supernatural punishment. That's just the language of the text. But it just means the way of the world is, is that the actions of a parents affect their children. Except so. that the text says that it's God who is punished. That's the problem. Again, the problem, it, what, what gets in the way of these reinterpretations is the text they're trying to reinterpret. Yeah. I think it's very current. It's not just Germany. We see the same thing in the United States, whether there should be reparations for slavery. Uh, and um, however you argue on, on that, there is a sense of, is there, if you're a part of a culture or a, a people that have committed sins in the past, do you owe something? Uh, even though you didn't do it, but you're the children of those who did it, um, do you owe something to those who were wrong? So it's, it's not, a good it's question. And then, and then I'll do an embroidery on that. Go ahead. <laughs> and say this. I'm South African born. I lived all my life under the apartheid regime because I moved to America when apartheid still ran. All the time that I lived there, once I got the vote, I never voted for the Nationalist Party. I voted against apartheid. I worked against apartheid, but I benefited by being a white South African. Do I owe somebody something? Believe me, this is, a, this is a very common expression. In South Africa, there is nothing worse than being a white, that, nothing worse than white Jewish guilt. <laughs> <laughs> because that's just how I was brought up. I, I have an overwhelming sense of guilt for having been born white in South Africa. Do I owe anybody anything? I don't know. You know who, I'll finish with, with, a, with, a, with a good Jew, Augustine. Um, just kidding, no. 
I, I'll finish off with this. Very interesting is that is that Augustine lo actually loved this verse from the Ten Commandments because what what Christian theology did a, is Augustine known for? Oh, because Jesus died on the cross for you. For which sin? Any sin that you might have committed from now on. No, original sin. Exactly. He said, look, this text that children are punished for the sins of the parents, the parental sin, this is a cousin. This is a theological cousin of original sin. And therefore, this points in the direction of original sin. Yeah. We'll finish with that. <laughs> but thank you very, very much for, for having me. Different ways to take ethics, either finding a way out by finding a technicality, Radical reinterpretation or believing that, there, that Judaism is evolves, that God made a mistake, right? a, kind of a progressive ethics. Three different models. So, thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.